So Funny It Hurts is brought to you by Pacific West Injury Law. Got into an accident? Contact Pacific West Injury Law. Also, there's nothing better for your mental health than a great workout. And our episode is brought to you by Fit Club, the only place to be. It's So Funny It Hurts. Welcome to So Funny It Hurts. Now this man needs zero introduction. I feel like the 10-year-old in me is losing my mind, Jamie Kennedy. Hi, welcome to So Funny It Hurts. That's a funny intro. Thank you. The like ten-year-old is losing her mind. I, well, and the what was that? Just a little creepy. The sixteen yeah. and the twenty-year-old in me. And I'm thirty-five, but, so not my. I'm just the excitement is unreal. The twenty-three-year-old is losing her mind. <laughs> How are you? Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming. Listen, I, I uh, I'm so happy you're here. I'm thankful you you had a show yes. last night, a Thank late night show. Can I just tell you? I want to talk about everything about you, but you have the most incredible ability to talk about things that most people are getting canceled for and making it so funny, so relatable, and honestly, it's the truth. That's a very big compliment, and uh, thank you. That's very sweet of you to say. Well, it's crazy, because I feel like, you know, we know you from all of the films and the Jamie Kennedy experiment, which I want to talk about. So we know you have a lot of balls. Like, you do a lot of crazy shit, which you've done, you know, <laughs> since the beginning of your career, even mm. with Marty Powers, which mm. we'll talk about. Wow, wow. Okay. But do you get up there? You you post a lot about your hecklers yeah. on, on your social media. Mm -hmm. uh, has there been an incident where it's just been too much and you've been like, no, man, I'm not performing right now? I've never, actually, I've never not, I, actually, I've never not performed, but one of the worst heckles ever was about five years ago at the Irvine Improv, one of the greatest clubs in the world. And a lady was heckling me, um, meaning she got offended by a joke. I comment on it. And when you comment on the joke, then usually people go, ha, 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 and then realize the heckler is, you know, goofy. Well, then I commented on it. That didn't get a laugh. I did one more try, did not get a laugh. And another one goes, why are you being so rude to her? So the whole audience was attuned to the heckler's frequency and not mine. It was the only time in the history where like pretty much the whole audience thought I was bad. And I go, what's your fucking problem? And then it went back and <laughs> forth. And literally I said, bro, this is going to be on TMZ. And sure enough, it was. And TMZ actually did me a solid and showed like more of it. So it didn't look like I was totally out of pocket. But literally, the it was wild. It was like a bad heckler. Not The only heckler no comic can deal with is table talk. Table talk is, okay, did you hear what happened? So, and just not, because you just can't combat that. We right. try to. Everything else is, we can all deal with. But it's just, they're just not paying attention. And if no one shuts them up, then that's a hard heckler to deal with. But everyone else I can deal with. Yeah. But I deal with hecklers more than ever now because well, your content's very controversial. You think so? I think so wow. because I feel like, and, and I mean it in the best way. I feel like you know one thing I love about comics like you and Bill Burr. I think that like you haven't let you're like an old school comic. You're not going to let cancel culture restrain you 
from speaking your truth or making a joke out of a joke or being a comic. I think a lot of comedians and listen, it's your world. You tell me. I think a lot of comedians are playing it safe now in order to not get everything taken away from them that they've been building for the past decade. I mean, there's, you know, again, that's very sweet of you to say, and there's some truth to that. There are a lot of comics pushing it, but there's definitely ones dancing around, you know. And the whole thing with the cancellation is, is that basically no one wants to get kicked off the nipple. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, everybody is making a money. If you're making some sort of money off a corporate dollar, then you can be potentially kicked off the nipple, the big the big nipple of corporations. You know what I'm saying? So then people went to YouTube and these different places once they got, you know, out of TV and stuff. And then YouTube became very corporate. So it's absolutely, we have to progress as a society, but we've lost our collective minds in terms of nuance and common sense. So a comedy club is where you lift your weights, okay? You don't get a muscle without lifting weights and sometimes the weights drop it's a gym it's messy and so when we go in there we'll never know if anything works ever unless we try it Mm -hmm. so there has to be a high level of forgiveness because it's not a guitar where you can hit the notes the note response is the audience's reaction that's the instrument and so yeah if people you know people are going to come in and get all you know booty tickled over jokes it's just not for them yeah all right so i want to kind of start from the beginning because you're from upper darby my wow. father's from upper darby oh my god this is so wild uh-huh are you an eagles guy yeah i think we all have to be yeah we have to be it's yeah. the law yeah uh and we're having a good couple of seasons which i'm very happy about yeah i'm very a little bummed that i didn't go to the super bowl but i felt better because i if you know because they lost i would have been bummed if i was there and they lost yeah, yeah they did they i listen we lost our defense in the the last quarter so it was kind of our fault but mm. i don't want to talk about that today okay okay wow that's crazy from you d yeah is that crazy yeah it's really weird uh but when i was uh because i i really am such a big fan of yours but i wanted to make sure that i knew everything Thing. we've worked together and we didn't even know it because you I worked with Fran Drescher that was my start into the comedy world and Fran Drescher was doing Living with Fran uh-huh. and that was a show that your production company came yeah. up with that's crazy that's so crazy uh yeah we did I you know I had my show on I had a couple shows rocking on the WB and then you know, they said, what else you have? And me and my buddy had this idea and we went in and pitched the show and it was called Quarter Life Crisis, which was basically about a woman who was about 50 dating a guy who was 25. And it was based on some reality in my life with my buddy dating an older woman. And then we were lucky enough to get Fran and I could see how you have a Fran, you know, you and Fran have a kindred soul it's italian jewish yeah it's just what it is it's incredible and so i guess you were on the show but you were pro i was on the show a lot of the first season and then i got busy and then you know they ran the and show. then i took over for you in the yes. second season there you go because <laughs> they needed so, that comedic release there you go so that's <laughs> that's wild that you were on it and wild yeah yes, and yes. it's great so you kind of actually got my start into the comedic world you didn't even know that so thank you wow okay. and i appreciate it but you grew up in upper darby yeah uh, and you had this wild success, but what was it like for you? Like, what was the first point in your life, if ever, where you were like, first of all, I'm funny. 
and I want to do this. And did you ever use it as a way to get yourself out of trouble or was it difficult for you growing up? I know a lot of comics like myself, I used humor to sort of be the distraction to everything that was happening in my my childhood. And it made me kind of who I got to be in, in my comedy side. Yeah, I mean, um, I think I probably learned I was funny when um, in school I would do something and girls would be like giggle, but they would be like, you're weird. It wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't like funny, but I was like, you're weird. But they were laughing, you know, so I was getting a reaction. And then I think once my mom, my mom had these little like brunches sometimes at the house, a bunch of old ladies, and uh, she would wheel me out and I would be funny doing like making fun of the other lady or doing an imitation. And so that was like some kind of early form of validation. And then, and then one day I just started doing, I did an imitation in my, in my mom, I, in my head, I heard something and then I did it and I said, well, that sounded pretty good. I was probably like 13 years old and I was like, that actually sounds like what I was imitating. And then I got a tape recorder and I started <laughs> recording voices into the tape recorder as things that I like to imitate and then I'd play them back and I don't know I got like 10 or 12 and I thought well that's weird and I didn't know anything about it or if it's a skill set or a career but I just thought that was the thing and so you know I went throughout life going to the prison of schools <laughs> you know what I mean it's yeah. like and then I would always get in trouble for being disruptive for talking yeah. for being but I was funny so yes in ways of detentions and with teachers and the homework and all that stuff it was late you know, it'd be funny but yeah you always use your humor but it, it wasn't really until I was about 15 and I said maybe this is a something I could pursue as a career yeah and then you did and you did you've done so much my favorite thing about you is that it's crazy to me how brilliant you can be in the jamie kennedy experiment and then go to ghost whisper and have this really amazing um different side of your personality and your acting ability uh when you came to la you wrote this book wannabe uh it's in the book wannabe and you talk about marty powers mm -hmm. moving to la is very difficult I think I did, and it was very difficult having representation and getting yourself out there. So who is Marty Powers to you? <sighs> Try to give you a condensed version of this. All right. So. I only ask because I think it's so iconic and says so much of who you were even at that time. Yeah, no, I was... So, and this is a good microphone to do it. So I was living in my buddy's house who was dating a 50-year-old, and he was about 25, Okay. I was living in the back, back house, okay, in an area by Westwood. And I had multiple jobs. I was a telemarketer. So by the Seventh Veil, there was a room and everybody would <laughs> sell. Exactly, you know where that is. <laughs> right next to it, there's a, a, what we call a grunt room. And it was struggling actors, strippers, you know, wannabe comedians, all the stuff, dialing for dollars. And so we would dial, try to get leads on copy machines. We would call corporations and then we'd try to sell them toner, right? And so I did that. And when doing that, I started practicing my comedy because I was doing open mic tonight and I would use different voices and dialects to call different cities. And I would like try to ingratiate myself. So if I was calling Texas, I'd be like, hey, is Phil there? Hey, Phil, let me tell you about this new damn copy <laughs> machine. So I would do all that stuff, right? I also did, in the afternoon, I delivered sandwiches. 
Okay, sandwiches up on Sunset. Those little carts where people pull and they go into different businesses. Uh-huh. At that time, I had a very older Jewish guy that I had a sandwich every day. He would buy roast beef. He would buy pastrami on rye. But what kind of rye you got? What kind of, is that sweet mustard? I want hot mustard. And he was like, he talked like this. And so then there was another guy who was huge in the business named Marvin Dower, I think, or Marty Bauer. And Marty Bauer was the head of another company that ended up becoming UTA. Long story, super boring. I just concocted a character. I had learned so much through telemarketing. It was like three objections, then hang up. Don't take no, boom, boom, boom. Once you have them on the hook, sell. And I was selling office products. I was selling toner, unsexy pencils, unsexy whiteout, unsexy. I'm like, I'm sexier than a pencil. <laughs> So I, it makes a list of how to sell things and what are the, and so I made a list about myself. I was like, what are the products? What are the good points about me? So then I just treated myself as a product, made a character. I wanted to be powerful. So I called him Power, Marty Power. And then I got a book, uh, which you had to do back in the days, pre-internet. And I called every agency and every casting director. And I started my pitch and I would say, uh, I got a kid here who's a cross between uh, Robbie Benson <laughs> and James Woods. So that was a thing back then. This is 30 years ago. You yeah. wanted edge, but you wanted cuteness. And so I cold called, you know, 100 or two. two and every out of like 200 people, I might get 10 responses. Five ask for a tape. Tape leads to a meeting. And that's how it started. But I literally just lied my ass off because <laughs> no one cared about me. No one wanted me. No one ever wants you in LA. Um, I tell people now that are doing well, they get with so many people now I know only making it through their own social media. And then the agencies come swoop in. I'm like, why do that? They never wanted you before. They weren't there for the process. You built this beautiful dinner. Now they want to eat it. And so, yeah. And that's how it started. And, and um, I got my first holding deal for MTV in 1994 when I was 23 years old. And uh, that was just to do like interstitials. And so that was a six month deal. But Lisa Berger, um, I love you. She out there, she was an executive and then she became the president of E and all this stuff. But she was like, I think you're so funny. And so she did a lot of little stuff with me and then that led to other things. Okay, so you're right. You kind of like make the table and they eat it. But I feel like you, you kind of made your own table and then ate it. Like you created Jamie Ken- the Jamie Kennedy experiment. And this mm-hmm. was before like punk. This mm-hmm. was in 2002. Like there were not shows. Yeah, 2001. 2001. Yeah, that's when we started it. And you would prank these people. Mm-hmm. They had no idea what was going on. Mm-hmm. They were insane, insane plots and storylines. Mm-hmm. Was there ever one that you, that went totally... A, a way that you didn't anticipate, good or bad, and and you were like, yeah, okay, this is it. Multiple times, um, we didn't have a lot of money, and the network was like, you need to not miss a prank, because you're not gonna have a fucking show, so you need to fucking get the prank. So what we would do is pre-produce, meaning you would come in, you want to prank your friend, and we would know everything about her. We set up the scenario. So it would be so golden, right? Like she'd be in this weird, bizarro world. 
And so we would do four marks for each prank, so four different tries at it. And we'd usually always get at least three. Some would bust, but we would have enough. Um, probably the craziest, one of the craziest ones was a guy. It's the simplest one. It was in Pasadena uh, with, with golfers. And I was B-Red. And the guy was like, hey, we, we missed someone. we got to add someone to our foursome. So if you know anything about golf, an unknown person in the foursome who's annoying is the worst fucking thing, <laughs> especially for a serious golfer. <laughs> and so we went in and every time he would do something, B-Red would come up and be like, yo, look at his, I forgot I had my rap. I was like, look at his ring, look at his swing. Uh, he smoothed like Jack Nicholson. It's kind of sickleson. <laughs> no, I said, look at his swing. It's like Phil Mickelson, kind of sickleson. He ain't Jack Nicholson, you know, like, <laughs> and the dude was so fucking, he's like, hey, can you stop that? Can you stop that? I was like, my bad, G. You know, so we were doing, and I was like, as soon as he was about to putt, I'm like, damn, that hole is your home, son. And like, he missed like three putts. We got and it's like, dead quiet. Oh yeah. Everybody course. else was in on it. It's dead quiet. <laughs> he got, the. he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he fucking stop playing he was walking off the course we said it's a prank and he threw the club which is a putter which is thick it's like fuck you and he threw it we like missed us and he's the only mark in the history of our show that did not sign so we give you a little bit of cash you know you meet with our cute producers they give you some you know hot coffee like hey you're gonna be on a show and he was like fuck you you pieces of shit and he went absolutely bananas and he was the only mark in the history that would never sign and you can't air it if they don't right no so it never got aired no well that a, a version of it with different marks but not his, that guy yes his so he was he was real mad uh would you ever bring it back um definitely i mean because listen tiktok tries about, to do it mm-hmm and everything's so staged. That I, that's the one thing I hate about social media. They're like, oh, I was pranking my wife. And you know, it's not like it's also stupid. Uh, I hate that. I, I didn't even realize that. And people said, dude, you're the only guy that's real about it. Like, they're all fucking fake. And I was like, that's, just, that's sad. And they get a lot of views. Yeah. I'm definitely, I think the timing has to be right. And I want to. But in the world we live in, who's gonna have the guts because we have to go after things you know so like i could start simple but my work my way up you know like one of my ideas is that you know everyone has an emotional support dog you know and and it's like insane like dogs have more rights than humans i go to my favorite cafe now and there's a little child they're like just sitting there and so I'm like get annoyed with it. So like I'm like want to bring in my emotional support alligator, <laughs> you know, our emotional support tarantula. You know, I want to bring in yeah. and just be like, no, it's my emotional support. Like you know, and like just why? And just people will coddle. They're like, we understand. They will. But they'd be very respectful. Yeah, there's there's. I want to let people in. I only want to have a restaurant um, that you can. Uh, that was, we, we had one that we came up with where it was, I hope no one steals this, but I don't care. It's you pay by your, you pay by your oppression. 
So the more oppressed you are oh, as a culture, my God. the less your bill will be. So if it's a white guy, a black dude, an Asian dude, a Latina chick, a transgender Latina chick, you know what I'm saying? It's like, well, okay, this said, and so... And the couple, like one person wouldn't be in on it. He's like, what the fuck did I? <laughs> like, no, you got to pay all their bills. You know what I mean? So there's, no one's going to touch that. So I have to start small, get the ratings and then move up. But like, you know, there's a lot of things we can touch on, which should be. And the people love it and it will go viral. It's not the people love it. It's the gatekeepers that are scared but there's a very small portion okay well i feel like with your stand-up comedy look i think that some comics would look and be like you're committing career suicide by talking about the pandemic covid trump politics whatever you believe in mm -hmm. uh because things are so politically separated now but we do have things like social media where you can garnish eight, nine, 20 million views. Yeah. And you don't really need the stand-up clubs anymore to be able to talk no, like that. The clubs are great. They allow us to do this. Okay. No, but what, what career though? What suicide? Like who? Like Netflix? Netflix used to be, and I'll say this, you can put it at them. They used to be people that would take chances i'm not saying they don't now but they're very one-sided in what they air do you know what i'm saying they have to air both sides and so it is but it isn't there's new companies coming out like tubi and there's just so many disruptions you don't even need a special as much anymore because you can just put your clips out and get popular mm -hmm. and hot off of that and sell tickets off of it so i i think that i agree with what you're saying but I think the influence of the legacy media every day is dwindling. And I think they have they have legacy IP. Okay. But I think the rise of the people that are tired of the bullshit is getting bigger. So Hollywood's traditional influence, it, yeah, they're always gonna have some big movies, of course. But I think that you can make a wonderful living, a huge living outside the system saying what you want. As long as it's within reason. I mean, if you're super on the fringes of either side, it's too much. But with that, and, 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 and as you get popular, Hollywood then goes, well, how can we get in business with you? Yeah. You, you, it's, it, at the end of the day, I mean, you have to do something pretty shady for Hollywood not to want to work with you because Hollywood is shady. So it's like, I've been through it. I mean, I'm almost 53 years old. I've done so much. I'm, I'm lucky. I've been a part of it. You know, I still do some stuff sometimes. And it's like, I've done it. Like, I don't need to sit here and worry about what some executive thinks. Yeah. Can you talk about the shadiest thing that's happened to you since being in Hollywood? Because you've had over 30 years in the career. You know, I, it's crazy how much I realize how lucky I am. Because, like, I'm a, I'm a man. You know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I guess I'm a kind of a big dude. I'm not that huge. But, like, I don't think of just the power of myself being in this body that, and, and who, that I've never really had, like, I probably people don't fuck with me. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. um, shady. I think I've never had any shady, like, 
sexual, like people trying to. I mean, honestly, I've had some exact some female people. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. I, but to, you know, and the, we're a guy, so we don't mind that. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> it's like it's hard to it's hard to grope a guy. A guy's like, oh, cool, we're, you're you're friendly. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Like, but like, I definitely had like, if I were to tell details of things, people would be like, well, that's not proper. But you know. It's the it's the nineties. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's so people didn't care. It was everybody was having fun. But like I've never had like any of any weirdness like that. Uh but I've seen a lot of scumbags and people that act like these is some what is I don't, that? I Jesus have no Christ. idea. Jesus Christ. So Sounds like a trombone. I thought somebody farted. I know. So, I'm like, I swear to God, I'm sorry. Too many dudes. Oh, oh my, my God. God. Wait, do we need a to tell maybe? somebody? Yeah, I'll see what I can do. No, it's fine. We'll keep going. If you, so. It's a comedy show. You know? <laughs> Jesus Christ. Um, Jamie, this is a classy place, and this is where I invited you. Okay? <laughs> Only fucking A list. This, well, this is where I live. Rent was so expensive in LA. I had to move here. I have a whole life out here. <laughs> Um, I don't think, no, I, the, the shadiest shit I saw is just the fucking accounting practices. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, uh, of movies have a back end of and, and people that, you know, keep hiding the money and stuff like that. But do I hear of things? Yes. Do you hear of, you know, that there's, there's rabbit holes you can go down. I've never seen anything that bad, but there's a definitely a lot of dorks. And dorks meaning they have no game in life, so they use power, influence, and money to to impress young wannabe actresses. Yeah. And those dorks are everywhere. Now, some of them are creeps. Yeah, I guess. But I don't like if I saw creepy behavior, I would say something. Yeah. Well, you do say something. I because it, it got brought up. You're in. Uh, you were in the Scream fan- franchise. Yes. You were amazing. Thank you so, so much. So friggin' cute. I can't stand it. <laughs> um, you were. You were so cute. And uh, you recently took uh, Nev Campbell's back, who will not be joining. I know. <laughs> Handle it. Wait. Take a second. Listen to me. I am Italian. I know. Jamie, I'm not going to let anyone fuck with you. <laughs> not now. Not ever. It's too many dudes. I'll put there. a ghost face on and take a fucking knife. <laughs> Go for it. Do you want me to? No. You just have to blink once if you want me to handle this. Let's see if we can okay. do one more. All right. Uh, you totally had Nev Campbell's back for not returning because she said financially it wasn't cool. It didn't make sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you do speak out a lot for women, which I appreciate you using your voice for. When it came to the Scream franchise, when it very first started, did you guys ever think it would be what it was when you read the script for Randy Meeks' character? I knew it was going to be great. I knew it was a very unique, because you get scripts and there's something called descriptions and it's like interior, you know, house, night, a dimly lit room, blah, blah, blah. And it's a lot of that. And then you get to the dialogue and it's like, meh. And you lose track of it. And I was reading that script and I just kept turning the page. It was like interior kitchen night. And it was just this dialogue of the beginning of the Drew scene. So I was like, this is just so good. It just literally was like so gripping and engaging. And I read the script in probably an hour. 
So I thought this is a really cool little horror movie. Mm-hmm. It would be incredible if I could become get a get a partner. Like the, I had an audition and I got the whole script. You know how rare that is. Like this movie's so hallowed, hallowed. I mean, revered. Excuse me. Um, and I got the script, so I read it, and the part was really good. And I had to like audition my head off. And I thought if this could be a cult classic, it'd be great. And so that's what we thought. We thought it's a unique take. Horror was dead at the time. Uh, we were all up and coming except Courtney. She was, you know, a big star. And um, it did, did I know, we thought once we started making it, we thought we had a chance at something. Did I know it was going to be part of pop culture lexicon now more for the rest of history? No, I did not. I mean, because people are obsessed. I have a friend who listens yeah, to, they're obsessed. They're obsessed. My best friend told me a story about he would listen to the Scream soundtrack in his bedroom when you would get out of school with the lights off. And I should have been terrified at that point being his friend. But I like toxic people. And so I continued the friendship. People were obsessed and still are with the franchise. And it's incredible that it blew up the way that it did. And then was that sort of your... Because Malibu's Most Wanted came after Scream. Yeah. So the Malibu's Most Wanted comes. Yeah, that was seven years later. But you were already doing B-Rad. In the Jamie Kennedy experiment. Yeah, and I was doing them on stage. Okay. So, so I'd done, I had done stand-up, and then I started getting acting roles, and then I got Scream, and when I got Scream, I got real busy. And so, like, for four years, I was really busy doing movies, just movie to movie to movie. And then I got a little quiet, and then I, people started giving me development deals, and I was like, where's the movies? And so my agents were like, do the development deal. So I did that. And then I developed, I'm like, well, if I'm going to do a TV show, I'll do this one. This is the one I want to do. And so I created, along with three other guys, the Jamie Kane experiment. And I had been doing stand-up at colleges and all this throughout the, my movie career. So I took the B-Rad, and that was one of the staples of the, of the pilot of Jamie Kane experiment. And then I, they were, Warner Brothers was like, hey, this, you're you know up-and-coming comedian. You want to do a movie? And it was a whole process. And I said, I want to do it on this character. And... Uh, you know, it's wild times. They they took a chance. I sat in there with the you know president studio and my producer, and we just hashed it out until we got it done. Um, do you think that if you would have produced the movie in twenty twenty three, would it have been able to be made with all of the ways that people cancel everything? Um, it sh- here's the thing. It should be so for people like you. It should, it, it, it should be, it's what we need. We need a, um, first of all, the answer, no, the answer is no, it could not be made. It would not be made. Um, but it should be made. Mm -hmm. Uh, but a different, you know, what B-Rad was now, the second one would be B-Rad is kind of a fish out of water in this new culture. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And so, uh, it could not be made, but it should be because, it keeps us in check. Like, that's what comedy does. Comedy goes, hey, this is absurd. Just want to put a mirror up to it. You realize that, right? And then if it's good comedy, it'll make you think. And so we're at a point right now where we're just accepting fantasy. And it's like, 
whoa, we're, 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 we're in a moment of non-reality. And if people call, and if you comment on certain realms of this reality, they'll call you, uh, you know, they'll call you like you're a phobe or you're an ist or something. And it's like, whoa, 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 nothing is beyond reproach. Why, why are you so scared to get commented on? And so that you have to be careful of the people that want to cut out a man's tongue, you know? They, yeah. And so it's like, yeah, we need comedy more than ever. Don't you don't don't you think it's fascinating? You see less and less. The only comedy you see in stand up, which is great, but where's your movies? Where's your TV shows? They've they've kneecapped it because there's a <laughs> you tell me. I mean, if you can't if you cannot joke about something and question it, why? Why is that? Um, I want to ask you, did an amazing, Jesus Christ. No, it's really annoying. I walked in and there was like 50 dudes. What are they doing? And like blowing, tw blowing each other. 29 there, pizzas. Hear. I'm like, did I just walk into Zeta beta? Did you? <laughs> like what the fuck? And then I see John Orlando. He doesn't have an ounce of fat. I remember him as a normal guy. He's like, well, he doesn't eat the pizza. He gives it away. <laughs> He's gluten free now. I just told someone in the studio to tell the people to stop fucking the green room door. So yeah, that's so, so fun. Thank you so yeah. much. I, I've got gotcha. you. Okay, thank you, babe. Do, should I go out there and say something though? Do you want to go tell them to stop fucking the green room door? Are they just kid? Like, are they doing something? Are they? It's that door just when it opens and closes. They're just continuing opening and closing the door. It's just a door. It's a door. <sighs> Sorry, Jamie. Get All right, keep going. Um. <laughs> One thing that you said, I was going through your Instagram, yes. is you talk about the COVID vaccine. And you said, yes. I asked one question. Mm. And something I like about your comedy, because I think it makes people think, is you use a lot of metaphors. I try. Thank and you. I think that that is a, an appropriate way to sort of explain a situation that's a little handsy. But uh, what was it when it came to the vaccine for you? What do you, you just mean? wanted to ask one question. Oh. And then well, you kind of, because it, it, you kind of say, I don't want to say it because it's your like it's your stuff. But like you were like, if you were ever to buy a car, if you were ever to do anything. Oh, yeah. Like if I were to go like I'm actually looking for a house right now. And one of the things you have to do is you look at comps. OK. And then you look at the history of the sales in the neighborhood and you could look at school boards, although I don't have a kid. But or you look at where's the you know, where's a Whole Foods? You, you look at multiple things in making a purchase you know what's the airbnb status in the neighborhood and when you do that you're what we call an informed shopper okay you ask one question about a new vaccine that was made in record time and you're a conspiracy theorist and that tells you everything you need to know you know it's like what my dad used to say to me he's a beautiful soul but to kids, he would say, to us, to his kids, he would say, little people ought to be seen and not heard. And which is funny because he was sweet, but he was like, yo, just don't ask questions. Fucking this is where we're going. You know what I'm saying? And it's great. If you're eight years old, that's what you do. You get in the back of the Chrysler and you just let your dad take you to the park, right? Or wherever we're going to go that day. But that's what the government was. The government was treating us like eight-year-olds. And let me get deep on this for a second. And the arrogance the arrogance of the college educated, I want to say 
more left-leaning person. I didn't go to college, okay? I have millions of dollars, okay? I'm lucky, I've also worked hard. But I have enough academia in my family to understand the college mindset. And these people that are indoctrinated by this system that just trust big government, but yet these are the same people that will rail at certain things like Occupy Wall Street or, you know, the bank bailouts. This is no different. It is a mandated thing from your government. And the fact that the government and whatever you want to say, the powers that be, were so good at pitting people against each other was a super win and an amazing psychological maneuver by the powers that be. And I applaud them for that because they turned people against each other, which it was like, I, I have people that are, well, I have people all in my life, all types of people that are vaxxed. I'm not vaxxed. I'm not vaxxed at all. Okay. And I proudly say that I will never get fucking vaxxed. Okay. But of course I was part of the society that had the immunization as a kid and stuff. I didn't know what the fuck I was getting. I was five years old, you know, but there was just too quick and too many fucking red flags. Okay. And people, I know too, people hit my DMs all the time and they tell me stories. What do they say? Tell me, what do they say when they hit your DMs? I have, I was a healthy 26 year old sprinter. I now have serious lower chamber damage, myocarditis. My mother got it. She's fucking had the shakes. My father, um, my, my grandmother, my, my, my aunt just passed away. I've known, I know peripherally at least six people in the last nine months that have passed away young, anywhere from 38 to 50. And of course they say, uh, just a coincidence. Yeah, I had Taco Bell on Tuesday. I still have diarrhea, but it's just a coincidence. You know, so this is, and I will go down. I don't know why. Like, I don't know why I'm like this. I don't know when this happened. There's pe my family, except my brother and my sister. They know I'm not vaxxed. My other three sisters think I'm totally vaxxed. So what are you, a total of one of six? Yeah. One I would six. never tell them. They would think I'm crazy. But you don't my, think they've seen that your social media? Or no, anything? they're so they don't they don't follow. They won't follow any of this. They like are like go to these are people that go to college still. They believe in college. No offense to my family. They, I can't tell them this. Like they believe that in four years college is don't get me crazy. Is anyone familiar with Chat GTP? Like it's the society in the next two years, just two is going to be so transformed, people are going to have their head, their head is going to explode. They have no fucking idea. They don't pay attention. And it's like, the same with this shit. There's just, it's, it's, it's insane to me. And yes, there are people, you know, my boy, uh, who opens for me, he got Nick the facts. Paris, yeah. Oh, no, no, I don't know about Nikki. Oh, Kyle. Oh, Kyle. I mean, it's not my place to talk about him, so I maybe cut stuff. But, you know, me and him, we don't share totally of views, but he's like, yeah, I did it. And he's like, but I see your point, but I also just like wanted well, to do it. I mean, because listen, not that I agree or disagree with you, but one of the things I wanted to do when I got to have my well, own tell podcast me your, is- tell me I, your opinion. I, you know, I'm very open. I, I really appreciated something that I appreciated. I got vaxxed. It was work mandated for me. Um, and How many times? 
twice. How do you feel? I feel okay. Okay, good. But I also live a healthy lifestyle. Like I, I am healthy. I know yeah. other people that are not. I, I don't know what it is. You know what I'm saying? But yeah. one thing that I found very, I'm one to, I'm not a cancel culture bitch. I don't agree with that. I think having conversations and educating on all aspects are very important to me. Right, wrong, or indifferent. I don't care to be right about anything. I want to be smart. Mm-hmm. And something about your... Um, uh, your stand up because look I love funny people I love comedy mm. fuck that I've ever done it I love to laugh and I think it's the the best way to make a situation that's usually very difficult much more palpable which mm. is probably why I'm funny I grew up fucked up mm. uh, I have a lot of trauma mm. so funny it hurts is all about why we're funny and the trauma that made us that way. When people say you're so funny, I'm like, thanks, I'm fucked up. So that's why. Mm, you know what I'm mm, saying? So mm. I like it all. I appreciate it all. But when you talk about it, you specifically, you've been the first one to really deliver it in a way that to me is not very, um, I, I don't see people getting very defensive. I think that I'm not going to share your set with you, but if you have a chance to see your set, I would run, not walk the way you talk about Biden, the way you talk about women's marches. I, I mean, I, I am a woman. I love being a woman. I was laughing very hard last night. You have a really great way of making um, good points. I appreciate that. And I think that that's kind of my M.O. as a comic is that I go to the Catholic schoolboy angle, meaning I was raised in the Catholic school system. So it was like pushing the envelope to right to the edge, but being cute about it. And I think so that- So Catholic school made you cheeky and adorable and able to say things that are difficult to say. I, and I, they say so much about those goddamn Catholic schools. I think so, because like I had to wear, I had tied my own bow tie. I'd learned all these little things and you wear your sweater vest and it had to be pressed. So you had to be this presentable young little boy, but- I questioned the whole system. So, but if I questioned it too much, I'd be thrown out. So if I had a domineering mother and domineering nuns, it was either that or get out of the system. And it's like, I didn't want to be homeless. So that was way, I had to maneuver my way around it and find other allies. And so every dude that I hang out with, my buddies, all from my, from that are very rebellious. All the, my friends that I'm still friends with to this day were very much similar like that. Uh, Irish Catholic or Italian families, a lot of sisters. And so we maneuvered it. And I think that it's a way to do it because comedy is not preachy. Comedy is not hitting someone over the head. Comedy is, can be escapism, but comedy should be informative. And where you want, I can't, if I'm badgering the audience with a hammer, they're like, I don't, I have, this is what I tell this is what it is. I have to ingratiate myself to the audience. Okay, so first of all, I have to acknowledge when I'm, when I, I have a lot of different layers I have to go through in a short amount of time because of who I am. So I have to let people know that they know me, they have baggage with me. I have to then um, be self-deferential and self, what's that word, self-depreciating. Deprecating? Yes, so I, so I let their defenses down. Yeah. Right? And then as I do that, then within that, they think, oh, he's humble. And then they'll go, ooh, he's funny. And then slowly but surely, I start 
putting my ideas into them and indoctrinating them because I hook them. And then, and at the end of it, I'm leading them. That's the levels of a set for me. So you're a little manipulator. I'm just going to... All day. I'm kidding. <laughs> All day. A good comic should be. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's not bad. I don't think that's bad. Yeah. But it's not manipulation. It's what I believe. But if I want you to think like me, if you want to win an audience over, you have to manipulate them into your beliefs. Is that the secret, you think? Is that a, is that a secret? Oh, it's one of the comedy? secrets. You, and not in a bad way. Is that it's like foreplay before the big show? Yeah, it's like there's all. If you just go out there and you're just entertaining and funny, that's just one thing. You're just an entity, right? If you go out there and you're entertaining, but you're edgy, your edginess has to be funny enough within the edge so they feel okay laughing at it. If you're funny and you're edgy edgy but you want to be informative then your form informative has to be funny but also have enough common sense and facts behind it where they go okay i can see that yeah so i don't know it could be manipulation but it's more like just deep diving you know that type of stuff yeah okay i didn't know if we finished the vax talk but it's okay we can talk about whatever you, <laughs> you want get, you get trouble for that i, I it's my show All and right. this is the conversations that we're having i'll like talk about anything you want to talk about I like that. but what you said one thing on that which really pissed me off is work mandated yeah, that work. you don't like that. Where was the work? Um, it was a. Uh, Do you work there now? I don't. Exactly. Exactly. Take that clip right now and send it out. I know a few people that did it and got fired. That's enough to make me want to go in that office and fucking break every window. Yeah. Yeah, you're for the people. I'm for what's right. But that's what I'm saying. That's I'm the for, point for I'm just, I'm for, I'm, it's insane. It's fucking crazy to me. You know what I mean? Like that just, ugh. Yeah. I would be homeless before I would do that because I don't give a fuck because I have been broke. Yeah. What Maybe was it like for much. you in the pandemic? No, you didn't say, listen, it's a full conversation that I want to uh, have with you. Um, I think people were in very different, desperate situations um, during the pandemic, it also got very dark for a lot of people, including myself. I lost my grandmother. I had to start therapy. I'm so sorry. That's okay. Thank you. It was the best thing that happened. But uh, a lot of people went very dark in their in their beliefs and just trying to see. I know a lot of comics. Kyle talk about it. Talked about it last night. How he didn't work for 15 months being a stand up comedian. Did you go through any bouts, or even have you in your career? had bouts of, of depression or unkind thoughts about yourself, just being in this industry, just doing what you do. I mean. There's a lot of questions there, so let me try right, to answer. Okay. I'll answer the last one first. Uh, one of my earliest memories of this, of, of, of having doubts, uh, I was 1991, I was living in a very, very like one room not even a real apartment, hot plate, that type of stuff in Koreatown. This is right before the riots. And uh, I was broke and I had a one TV and I remember watching like, I don't know, some ABC News or some interview with Gina Davis. And I'll never forget this. And Gina Davis, beautiful, glorious, amazing actress, is like, I always knew I was going to make it. And I'm sitting in my shitty like a bad stereotype, my shitty apartment with my hot plate, like ketchup and ice cubes in the fridge. And I'm like, I don't think I'm ever gonna make it. You know, I'm like, maybe I'm just fucked. 
Like I just thought that really fucked me up this interview. And I thought I'm my, I'm probably, I might never make it. And so I would go out and I would do an open mic or something and my car was getting towed. I had nothing. And I just was like, well, what else am I gonna do? And so anytime I thought I was gonna quit, I already was quit. <laughs> I was already at the bottom. Yeah. I had nothing to fall back on. And so that's what, you can never have a fallback plan, but you can't because it takes a, a whole life to be, to get a life. You know what I'm saying? You don't have a fallback plan if you're trying to be a lawyer. So you don't have a fallback plan if you're trying to be a comedian. So the bottom line is I was already at the bottom. And so there's two types of people. You either die or you thrive. And I was like, not gonna, I was like, well, I got nothing else. So, so that was that. But in terms of the pandemic, I'm, you know, I'm pretty fortunate. Like, you know, I, my whole life is I'm, I'm on the road all the time and stuff. So I was happy to get a break. I'm not going to lie to you. And, yeah. um, I, you know, I'm fortunate. I have a house. And so I was in my house and I was like doing stuff I never did. I was like cooking and I was like fixing stuff up and, um, you know, I was just really enjoying it. I was with a girl from my girlfriend, you know, and I was, we were getting to love each other and it was like a wild time. And it was, I didn't drink. I didn't really do any drugs. I, I stopped drinking like four years ago. I'm not saying I won't ever again. I just was like, this is not. Are you sober now I'm, or not drinking now? I don't drink. Yeah. I'm not sober. Like I haven't gone to any meetings or anything and I'm not against it, but I just started as a, uh, what's the word? I was, it's a vanity thing. I was, my face was puffy. I started seeing myself in like guest spots on TV shows and I was like, I don't look good. So I stopped for like one month and then one month became two months and then two, three months. And then like you start making these little baby changes and then I started like getting more creative and started like doing pull-ups. I love that. Listen, I've been, I haven't had a drink in a month and it wasn't for any other reason than yeah. vanity as well. Yeah. I was like, oh, I'm like getting a little puffy. I think booze is kind of going to go the way of the cigarette. I think so too. It's starting to happen. There's a bar opened up by Woody Harrelson. It's a mocktail bar in LA. And I think that the new generation is like, I'd rather microdose mm -hmm. and I hate to sound corny. I'm like, well, you do what you do, but I do, I can't stand drunk people now. Like they're like a mess. And, yeah. and I do kind of get high off of just, you know. People watching. Yeah. And so, but I'm not against it, but I do, I hate to go on going a rabbit hole, but it does definitely make a lesser version of yourself in terms of like the choices. So, but anyway, the pandemic was there were all the moment, the big moments were of like, if you get that thing, other than that, I was using it as a positive thing to try to better myself. Yeah. Uh, listen, I appreciate you taking all the time with me of course. And, I, and I really do. I, um, I want to ask you, and then I want to talk about something that sounds so good to me. Don't suck, which is a project that you're working on right now, which is so good. It's done. Mm -hmm. Um, but when I was going through your Instagram, I, I saw that you, I, I forgot that you made the album with Bob Saget. Yes. And we lost Bob, Bob Saget. Yes. Uh, what kind of effect did he have on you as a comedian, as a friend? I mean, because I feel like we, people watch this, myself included, inspired by you. But like, who are your Jamie Kennedy? Uh, my Jamie Kennedys are, you know, are Eddie Murphy, uh, Joan Rivers, Sam Kinison. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, those are people that 
I was raised on, you know, Dana Carvey's and Mike Myers and such. Um, but, you know, Bob was one of my real life uh, mentors. Um, you know, also like Craig Shoemaker, one of my mentors. But like Bob, Bob was a, a, he was a special, a special, he was a special person. Like he, he did my show very early on when no one would do it. So he co-signed, you know, my show, The Jamie Ken Experiment, and made it like something that people could be on. Like he was a big star and he blessed it. And he allowed me to open for him. You know, I had opened for him in like the Comedy Magic Club. And um, I opened for him in the Vegas Festival. And he was just very encouraging. He was like, look, man, he's like, you're, you're on the right path. You know, you got to do this and just keep doing it. And the music came after he did my show. And that was a whole, so it was like the actor in my show and then letting me open for him as a stand-up. And then me and my friend Stu, we decided to do an album. And we called, you know, Kanye, and he was like, "No way!" And then we called. Did you call Kanye? Yeah, I called Kanye, and then. And we, he said no. He wasn't into it, and then we called Fitty. It wasn't like he was a direct no, but it was like yeah, yeah, right. pretty much yeah. Know, and then we tried to get Fitty. We couldn't get a hold of him. We went to Jay Z's people. Like we wanted a real guest set. You know, obviously we were shooting for the stars, and then um, Stu grabs my phone and starts going through it. And he's like, yo, what about Saget? And I'm like, that's a different way to take the song. And Stu's like, I know. So then Stu got inspired and he knew about my relationship with Bob and how we would go out. To, we would literally go out to this club at La Cienega at 2 o'clock and knock. And they'd go, we're closed. And he goes, it's Saget. And then like literally a wooden door would open. We'd roll in. Cosmopolitans, the best fucking Wagyu hamburgers. Like to our, to, we would, you know, remember Ledoux? We would go to yeah, Ledoux. Yeah, I love two, Yeah, we'd close at two. Well, we would stay till five. You know, oh my so God. all that type of shit. And we would go to after parties. And so the, we wrote the song and then the song became what people were laughing because it was against what, you know, Entourage did it well when they showed his lifestyle, which was, you know, against his image. And then our song glorified that image of the other side that people didn't know. And then we would relive that image. You know what I mean? We went out. We went to Vegas together multiple times. We did shows. We did tons of stuff. And Beautiful Soul, uh, in, it, it, it affected me deeply. Uh, I haven't been close with him in the last, you know, eight or nine years, not meaning just like because our circles change, you know? Yeah. And uh, I got to do his pod right before, a couple months before, and he was going to do mine. And, you know, I was, I was, I was extremely shocked. And a lot of people had called me about it. And, um, you know, I have a lot of, I have a lot of emotions about it. I have a lot of emotions that he went, he was very healthy. He went very soon. Um, also, some of the details that came out later, you know, I don't know. But as a human being, he's a beautiful soul. And, you know, I wish his family and his daughters, you know, nothing but peace. Yeah. 
Uh, I'm sorry for your loss because I I can only imagine. So I'm really sorry about that. Well, I mean, it's his family and his wife, or you know, much more than me. But as a yeah, as a but as a friend God, and as a uh, as a and as a mentor and someone who why you like me is because of Bob. Bob right. has sprinkled his pixie dust on me. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, let's talk about uh, the pixie dust you're sprinkling with don't suck <laughs> because um i like that term i love it i uh ha- it's matt rife yeah is the vampire yeah who i got to know from tiktok he's blowing up he's insane dude yeah his crowd work is unbelievable unbelievable he's nuts yeah he's nuts yeah uh and he plays a vampire but the the premise i want you to talk about it because it's coming out yeah don't suck um don't, here's what it is. So, an g- amazing comedian by the name of Rick D'Elia, who's uh, actually a local here now. Uh, Which you will be soon. I'm just going <laughs> to manifest this. Manifest. You can live in our house. Okay, I can't wait. Yeah, you're, come you're, move you're, in. You and your wife. Yeah, please. Um, he, he wrote this script, and it was called Two Pint Minimum. And I'm like, dude, I ain't reading that fucking script, which is crazy. It all, <laughs> People send you scripts all the time, all I, kinds of shit. I do, all types of shit. And so he he, ta- he talked to me about it in 2017, almost six years ago, in the green room of the factory, which is crazy. It's kind of all things go back to the factory in Vegas. And he was telling me about it. I'm like, okay, bro, sounds cool, sounds cool, sounds cool. And then, like, he sent me the script. I never read it. Like, you know, um, and then like a year and a half later, he's like, hey, man, I sent you that script. You know, funding's coming for that movie. And I was like, oh, cool, man. Well, you know, let me know when it's real. So like people ask you to read a script and stuff and it's a lot of work. So it's like if you want to send me a script, you have to send them with an offer. Like, Here's the fucking offer. Here's what it is. So we know you're real. So he sends a real offer and he sends a real real money, real points, real everything. And I was like, okay. And so he's like, just read 10 pages. If you hate it, then, you know, I'll move on. And so I read 10 pages. I read the title. I hate the title. And from page one, I couldn't, I was like, this is incredible. And the movie, the script is unbelievable. And I'm like, I'm not doing anything until I finish the script. And so... It's amazing. He's so talented. So the script is about a comedian who's aging. Stop it. And he gets an opener. And this opener is like, wants to open for him. And he's like, you can keep my money. (laughs) You can do this stuff. You can do whatever. All I want to do is I just want to learn the craft of comedy. And he's like, okay. Like the guy makes it so he can't say no. So as this guy starts opening for him, that's that young Matt Rife, um, the guy starts noticing weird behaviors about this guy. And then he realizes at some point it's revealed that his opener is a vampire. Now, it sounds like a crazy premise. The trailer's amazing. But... Thank you. The trailer, I swear to God, is amazing because I saw it. And normally if you would say it to me, I'd be like, bro, I don't know. Stupid. Exactly. Okay. And then I watched the trailer and I was like, oh my God, it's amazing. Well, because we have a great director, Raja, and he he's really good at letting people do what they do. Like he's got a great DP. He's got, you know, great actors. He's a great writer. He lets, and but he's also a problem solver. 
and he knows how to keep the tone of the movie. And I'm like, what is this movie? And he's like, this is Twilight meets a Jamie Kennedy movie. And I'm like, that's a great description. Yeah. And there's drama in it. There's heart. There's scary moments. There's a lot of comedy. But it's basically the whole morale of the movie is this character, mine, basically wants the other guy to bite him so he can become immortal and become famous. And there's a deeper lesson yeah. there about what fame. And so it's incredible. And, you know, young Maddie boy, when we did this, was just, you know, grinding it out. Like, and since... We shot this movie. He's become. Blew up. He's no. He's he is already a huge star, but he's on the way to super star. Like he he'll be playing arenas within you know eighteen months, in my opinion. Wow, it's that how big he will be, and he he's going to be one of our biggest, and it's incredible. I mean, it was like we caught this beautiful young, rising, hilarious star. So uh, now we just have to figure out. We want to put the movie out. We're going to actually have a screening of it here next week if you want to come. Yeah, I would love May to come. May 9th at the Westgate. But uh, I really want, you know, I want. I think if it comes out, people will like it. And it could be like the little engine that could. Listen, I'm telling you, I love it. I, I feel like I've been missing you in films. You really did oh, affect. Sweet. And not, I, I swear to God, like, not because you're here. I'm so grateful that you're here. You don't know me that well. Like, really. And I... I am such a fan of yours. And the thing I most appreciate is you using your truth and your honesty and authenticity in your comedy. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it just, I feel like it, it's just so smart and you're so smart and I appreciate you joining us. I appreciate you. And they can see you at the Laugh Factory, right? You're yeah, here you can, for the next couple of nights. Yeah, when does this come out? It's going to come out when they're gone. So fuck it. <laughs> you're not going to fucking see them. So maybe you'll see them suck. Because I fucking do. Go to my website, <laughs> jamiekennedy.com. You can see all my tour dates. I haven't sucked in a while. Then. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's been a couple of fucking years. <laughs> but you used to suck. I did used to suck. I had to suck a lot to realize I didn't want to suck. Am I allowed to And that is on a deeper level as well for me. <laughs> Where's that fucking trombone? Take us out. <laughs>